For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, it's Friday, folks. It's Hertel Show. I'm Andrew Donaldson. You made it to the end of the week. Uh, March the 25th, the year of our Lord 2022, continues to just roll inexorably along. A couple of things we're going to cover on the program today. Uh, Anne Frank might remember the story that they thought they might found a who betrayed her. Turns out it probably wasn't him. We'll cover that story a little bit later on. Uh, ending the program, we always do it on a happy note. We're going to talk some barbecue and a good cause for that barbecue. Uh, talking about Russia. The oligarchs, uh, you may remember Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister for Russia's daughter, who is very famous on Instagram, got herself into a little bit of notice. She's gotten a whole lot more notice, and now she's been sanctioned, along with a lot of other oligarch families who've been living high on the hog in London and other places. We'll cover that story as well. Plus, great guest today, uh, Jinyin Kwak, a friend of ours, Young Voices Australia, originally from Singapore, now lives in Sydney, went to school in Sydney. We're going to talk a little economics, poverty, how wealth is generating, how poverty is perpetrated. We're going to do away with the myth of if the richest person in the world would just write a check, all poverty would go away. That's not how that works. We'll also talk some immigration because she is one uh, and how economics and immigration are always linked and how they need to be discussed as such. Uh, our friend Quack will be on the program a little bit later on. But first, uh, there's trouble in domestic uh, politics land. Mo Brooks. Now, if you don't know Mo from Sweet Home, Alabama, uh, Mo uh, is running for Senate. He got the Trump endorsement early, but like a lot of these Trump endorsements, it's not going well. Uh, And now he's had a falling out with President Trump uh, from our friend Ola Pundit over at Hot Air. Uh, Mo Brooks turns on Trump. And he's spilling the beans or the tea or whatever it is the cool kids say these days. Quote, uh, he pushed me, this is Mo talking about Trump, to rescind the 22 election results, remove Biden and reinstate him as president. Well, that's a damning headline. Let's see what's going on here. Uh, the revelation was tucked away in a statement Brooks issued after Trump unendorsed him this morning. Uh, this is from the 23rd. Uh, quoting uh, Mo here, it's disappointing that just like in 2017, President Trump lets Mitch McConnell manipulate him again. Every single negative TV ad against our campaign has come from McConnell and his allies. Well, yeah, because he doesn't want you in the Senate. Take the hint. Uh, I wish President Trump wouldn't fall for McConnell's ploys, but once again, he has. President Trump, again, this is Mo talking here, Mo Brooks, asked me to rescind the 2020 election, immediately remove Joe Biden from the White House, immediately put President Trump back in the White House, and hold a new special election for the presidency. As a lawyer, I've repeatedly advised President Trump that January 6th was the final election contest verdict. 
and neither the U.S. Constitution nor the U.S. Code permit what President Trump asks, period. I've told President Trump the truth, knowing full well what it might cause President Trump to rescind his endorsement, but I took it a sworn oath to defend and protect the U.S. Constitution. Well, you're sure using that willy-nilly. Uh, I honor my oath. That is why I am. I break my sworn oath for no man. Uh, now, this is all pundits' uh, commentary on the situation. He said, quote, it's nice that Brooks let Trump know that his insane pitch for an out-and-out coup aimed at the current president wasn't legally possible, but I can't help but notice he decided not to share this information with the public until the very moment he no longer stood a chance to gain electorally from keeping the secret. It reminds me of the books from national reporters about Trump's presidency that have come out over the past years packed with juicy material. Lots of people are willing to keep a secret temporarily if it seems they can profit personally from doing so. As for Trump himself, I can't begin to imagine what sort of legal mechanism he imagined would be used to rescind the election and reinstate him as president. Impeachment and removal of a Biden would not do it, obviously. All that would do is make Kamala Harris president. Impeach and remove Harris, too, and you end up with President Nancy Pelosi. You see how ridiculous this gets. Our friend Bert uh, detailed this on the show a while back. You can go listen to that. Even if the GOP had the votes in the House to impeach Biden, they're nowhere near the threshold they need in the Senate to remove him, and they still wouldn't be anywhere near it if even they had a good midterm and regained the majority control. But that's what's revealing about this with respect to Trump. This is Alapundit's uh, analysis of this story in hot air. He's an authoritarian. He doesn't concern himself with the laws. He concerns himself with power, the legal niceties of how to undo the 2020 election, oust Biden and put Trump back into power is something for eggheaded lawyers and rhino politicians to worry about, such as the mentality of a guy who leads his closest competitor by 40 points in the latest presidential primary poll for a party whose activists often describe themselves as constitutional conservatives. And by the way, according to Brooks, Trump wasn't lobbying him to undo the election in the immediate aftermath of January 6th. He was lobbying him within the past six months to do so. He is obsessed with his 2020 defeat, and he's still trying to finagle a coup a year and a half later. And he concludes this way. He said the party is led by a crazy person, and everyone in Congress with firsthand knowledge of it will bite their lip rather than say so publicly again because it benefits them personally to keep quiet about it. And that's more important than whether it benefits the country to have Trump in a position of political influence. Uh, what a tangle web we weave. I just don't, I just can't stand hypocrisy like this. Mo Brooks uh, did everything he could to get this endorsement. Trump rescinded it. So now he wants to spill the beans on all this. Where were you on January 6th or before? Where were you in November when it was very clear that there was no widespread election fraud? Uh, look, I understand people make their political deals. But when somebody's just clearly wrong, say so. It'll save you a lot of time and trouble. I don't care if it's President Trump or President Biden or President whoever's next. If they're wrong, just say they're wrong. Don't put on a team jersey and try to justify it by what somebody else did. It's either wrong or it's not. And President Trump is consistently, terribly, laughably, if it wasn't so serious, utterly wrong about the 2020 election and about his place in the world post that election. And we should never lose track of that just because of partisan politics. More Hurtel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. We've talked about the war that Russia has perpetrated upon Ukraine and the Ukrainian people, specifically Vladimir Putin, 
being the bloodthirsty tyrant that he is, uh, leveling cities and attacking civilians. We've talked about how technology has really changed this war, uh, how the propaganda war did not go the way Russians thought it would, how the cybersecurity war didn't go the way they thought it would. Part of that propaganda war, though, is some of the uh, very high-flying parts of the Russian oligarchy that run that country like a criminal enterprise with Putin as its head are finding themselves squeezed out, and some of them are very high-profile folks indeed. Uh, Sergei Lavrov is the foreign minister for Russia. You will see him on TV frequently. Uh, He's even done some English language interviews that you can go and find. But he, like a lot of oligarch, the reporting has come out, has himself two lives. He has his official family, and then he has the real family, the real wife or girlfriend or whatever you want to call them. Uh, the problem that uh, he has is his stepdaughter, uh, Paulina Kovaleva. I hope we're saying that right. She got a little bit of press when the, this all started kicking off because she lives in London. She lives a very high-flying lifestyle, and she is all over Instagram and other social media about her lavish lifestyle. It, it looks like a lot of influencers. It looks like a permanent vacation. Uh, a lot of money getting spent around. So anyway, Vice News caught up with her and come to find out. We have some interesting information about Mr. Lavrov's stepdaughter, uh, Kovalina, who is the daughter of the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has been under scrutiny since the invasion of Ukraine began. You may have seen the pictures of her in the pool that uh, went out on Daily Mail and Telegraph and some other UK outlets. Uh, a Twitter thread from Marina Prochevka, head of investigations at Russian opposition figurehead Alexei Navalov's Anti-Corruption Foundation. That's the guy that went back to Russia and is now sitting in prison. Uh, claimed Kovaleva, now 26, bought a flat in London's elite district of Kensington for $4.4 million with the cash when she was 21. Uh, remember when Alice Watson Brown was on and she was talking about Knightsbridge and Kensington is just owned by a lot of Russians and the houses sit empty? Here's another example of it. Quoting back from Vice, the Imperial College London graduate's Instagram feed was a, quote, nonstop holiday between luxury villas, it said. Her stepfather, a loyal henchman, of Russian President Vladimir Putin has been a key figure spreading disinformation about the invasion of Ukraine. He's also been a critic of Western liberalism and decadence, even while Kovaleva has enjoyed the most luxurious spots of Western Europe. They're always hypocrites, aren't they, folks? Uh, kind of like Putin doing his little rah-rah speech that looked like Nuremberg uh, with all the Russian flags and stuff, and he's wearing a multi-thousand-dollar Italian designer coat. You know, very for the people. Uh, back to Vice. Let- Lavrov allegedly started a relationship with Kovaleva's mother, Svetlana Polakova, uh, in the early 2000s, despite already having a family with his real wife, Maria Lavrov. Polyakova has since become very wealthy, owning an apartment in Moscow worth $5.5 million and several luxury cars. The UK government said sanctioning Kovaleva, quote, sends a strong signal that those benefiting from the association of those responsible for Russian aggression are in the scope of our sanctions. The UK announced 65 more sanctions on banks, industries, and individuals, including Russian railways, defense company Kronstadt, and the Wagner Group. Uh, The Wagner Group, Wagner Group, I jokingly call them. Those are the Mercs. They do a lot of evil all over the world. They committed atrocities in Africa and also in Syria. Uh, And they are the group that decided to test the U.S. military in Syria at Dalaziz. They sent 300 of them against our American troops. They only got about 150 of them back with no casualties on our side. It's a pity we didn't kill all of them. But anyway, Wagner Group, that's the mercenary arm of Putin. 
The Organization of Russian Mercenaries reportedly tasked with assassinating Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, which they have not been able to do. The total global asset value of the banks the UK has sanctioned since the invasion now stands at 500 billion pounds. Uh, it's about three quarters of a trillion dollars in U.S. dollars. The net worth of the oligarchs and family members sanctioned is in excess of 150 billion pounds. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss said, quote, these oligarchs, business owners and hired thugs are complicit in the murder of innocent civilians. And it is right that they pay the price. Putin should be under no illusions. We are united with our allies and will keep tightening the screws on the Russian economy to help ensure he fails in Ukraine. There will be no let up. So the technology is not only affecting the propaganda war, it's not only affecting the battlefield war, because come to find out the Soviet comms are mostly open source and they're having a rash of killing their generals because they can find them because they're using open comms. Uh, they have not been able to take out the Ukrainian internet. But the other part, Vice is covering here, the oligarchs that are in power, they can't cover up their own lifestyles and their own hypocrisy. And as we talked with our friends in the UK a couple times now, a lot of that oligarch money flowed through London. And it was a long overdue reckoning to shut down that river of money. You can go back and listen to our conversations with folks like Alice Watson Brown, who covered this with us. But it just goes to show you, the internet is undefeated. Eventually, if you're putting stuff like your nonstop permanent vacation because your henchman father works for the thug dictator, you will be found out and eventually it will catch up to you and the party will end. Good on the internet in this one case. We hope it continues, and we hope the pain continues until Russia leaves the people of Ukraine alone. More Hertel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. All right, this is going to be fun. We're going to talk a little poverty, going to talk a little wealth generation, going to talk a little economics. We're going to go back to Australia. Another one of our great Young Voices contributor, uh, Zinyan Quack, is down there. She went to school in Sydney. She's originally from Singapore. Uh, so we got a lot of ground to cover. How are you this morning for me, afternoon for you down under? How's things down there? Good evening. Um, things are fine. It's been raining for a month now, but otherwise, I think we're good. <laughs> yeah, one thing about... Uh, Australia, not so much, but Southeast Asia, places like that, if you've never gone, is you have this wonderful thing called monsoon season, and it just rains for six weeks straight or whatever the case may be. So, um, Yeah, we love it here. It's like a country of um, water park. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, though, we actually covered it a couple days ago on the show. Uh, New South Wales and some other areas, some really devastating flooding has been going on down there, though, hasn't it? Yeah, but I reckon a lot of Aussies are actually enjoying it, <laughs> doing water sliding, things like that. <laughs> uh, when uh, It's kind of like when I lived in Vegas and you get the one week a year every spring where it rains for like three or four days straight, people just lose their minds. Okay, talking about people losing their minds, uh, there's, a, there's a thing going around on the internet. Stop me if you've heard this one before. It's become a meme. It's kind of a trope, if you will. Uh, the current uh, holder of this title is Elon Musk, but he's just the latest. I've heard this before with Bill Gates. I heard it years ago with uh, Bill Walton, who founded Walmart. Whoever the richest man in the world is or the richest person in the world, they get tagged with this. And it goes along the lines of, hey, how come he just doesn't write a check and end world poverty and end childhood hunger and end <laughs> insert whatever cause you want to end here? 
uh, you study economics, you study poverty and stuff. That's not exactly how that works. Uh, the rich guy writing a big fat check isn't actually going to solve that problem, is it? No, it isn't. And I honestly feel bad for the richest men in the world all the time. It, um, it almost makes me not want to um, earn more money. But um, I think a lot of people have the misconception that throwing money at a problem will make it go away. But I think a lot of countries that um, high poverty rates, um, people are hungry. I think it's usually because um, the country doesn't have a political system that supports um, creating wealth. So in other words, they don't have capitalism. And when you're talking about generating wealth, uh, what are we actually talking about? Because people always kind of tag other things with poverty. They talk... uh, well, they don't have uh, the right education or they don't have the right job or they're not in the right uh, economic environment. What is it that actually seems to cause poverty? Now, we, we know some of this is, you know, economicals. There's things, you know, certain people, groups and minorities in certain places are oppressed, things like this. But what is it that keeps people from being able to generate that wealth, do you think? I think um, I think the number one um deterrence to um, generating wealth really is restrictive policies. Um, I think like countries in uh, Africa, you would, um, they, they do have natural resources and you would think that the natural resources would make them wealthy, but it doesn't because um, innovation is simply not encouraged uh, in that country, in those countries. Innovation uh, um and there's like no, there's no, there's there's no competition. There's no productivity, and a lot of laws and regulations simply um, discourage uh, create a wealth creation. And the other thing is, is something like a natural resource, that doesn't actually mean wealth either, because as we've seen in places like Africa, like in the Middle East, I'm a West Virginian. We can talk about the coal industry. Uh, the thing that happens too often, though, is it becomes exploitative by a group, either the government or a corporation or whatever. And the people that actually live there don't actually benefit from it because the policies aren't designed to benefit from it. The policies are designed to just extract and move along. And and that's something that's kind of globally universal, isn't it? Yes, that is very true. Um, I think see, a lot of countries um, see um, nat- having natural resources does not equate to wealth because um, resources are not useful. It's only useful if um, people people learn to derive these natural resources and transform them into um, a product that, that is useful in our day-to-day lives. But because um, innovation, like I said before, um, it's not encouraged in these countries, uh, it's really difficult to turn these natural resources into a means of living. Yeah, and we're seeing it now. Uh, Jin Young Kwak is joining us down from Australia. Uh, we're seeing this a little bit out of the Russia situation where they're getting sanctioned. Uh, what happens with these autocratic dictatorial regimes is because of the corruption, because it's a dictatorship, it, it stifles innovation. It stifles creative freedom. So somewhere like Russia, we, we found out now once they start putting sanctions on, you know, the system collapses pretty quickly because it's all cronyism. It's not really a bottom up 
innovative society. Uh, how much does government pressure or a dictatorial pressure in these cases uh, talk about how that affects wealth generation? Because it'll affect a lot of wealth for a very, very small amount of people, but it's because the system is just funneling money. It's not actually generating wealth in the way like an American does or like uh, the England and Europe of the last century did. These places where we've seen great uh, Japan of the last 60, 70 years, Germany, post-World War II, these places that really explode in economic growth and economic freedom, uh, you're not getting that in a dictatorship or an autocratic society because you just can't, can you? No, you just can't. And I think a really good example is China. Um, in the Mao Zedong era, there was a cultural um, uh, leap and um, it actually ended in um, uh, the, the, a huge massacre of innocent lives. And that's because of dictatorship. So um, China only started to become um, an uh, uh, become an economic powerhouse when they started embracing um, parts of capitalism. And who knows how much they can achieve if they fully embrace um, the free market. But um, but but in recent news, we can see that um, the current uh, president Xi Jinping. He is looking to tighten reins. Um, to he's hunting down on the the wealthy, the affluent, and I think it's only a matter of time before we see China experiencing what they experienced um, during Mao Zedong's era. Now the thing with China is they've got a built-in advantage on the world economic stage that's letting them kind of be the exception to the rule about that is because they have a workforce of three quarters of a billion people. They have a workforce of 750,000, 750 million people, excuse me, that are for all extensive purposes, pretty much under government control. They can control where they work, where they put their industry, these things. And that has been the real secret to the economic might of China. And I don't think people talk about it, that a lot of it's just a sheer math problem of like, hey, we've got the biggest workforce in the world, and we also have complete and total control of that workforce. Yes, and um, it, it, is, it is simply quite, um, I think China itself is a very interesting topic. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think that uh, if, uh, if, 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 China, if the president of China were to um, uh, carry out even more restrictive policies, it will um, the 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 sheer the sheer mass of the country will not be able to help um, the economic progress, um, and I think we can see that from history. Um, during Mao Zedong's era, there were there were a lot of people as well, but um, they they were still living in poverty, and um, you can see you can um, when you look up uh, a lot of people's um, uh, people when you when you look. When you look up people who have survived the Cultural Revolution, you will find that um, you will find that they have learned to embrace capitalism in Western countries, and it doesn't help that it doesn't help that uh, that China is is taking a step towards capitalism because they understand that um, it is only a matter of time before um, things go back to the way they were. Yeah, talking to our friend quack over in australia uh why is it 
I know we talk about the human rights issues China has currently today, and we understand that their economic might is buying their excuses and ex- and uh, enabling them to do that because people don't want to, you know, they don't want to break up the cash cow that China is. Why isn't something you talked about the Cultural Revolution? Uh, the Great Leap Forward is quite possibly the greatest single human caused disaster and extinction of people and life in the history of the world. And we don't really talk about that much. I know China censors that's a lot of it, but you're just talking about 20, 25 million people starving to death, basically on purpose. Why do you think that's not more in our collective consciousness as the world, especially in the West, where we're usually pretty good with stuff like human rights, but we just never talk about the great leap forward. And this is one of the most horrific things in all of human history. I think uh, I think perhaps a lot of countries, I think a lot of countries don't want to jeopardize their economic ties with um, China because they understand that um, even just by the sheer mass of the country, um, it, 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 it'll be quite difficult for us to, for any countries to uh, to address this without um, you know triggering the um, triggering China. I I think. Uh, it was really interesting because I, I read a I. It was really it was it, I read an interesting article by the Prime Minister of Singapore Lee Sin Long, and he was uh, he he basically gave an in depth um, uh, analysis on um, trade ties between Singapore and the U.S. and China, and what he really strives for is. Um, the perfect balance between um, not agitating China while maintaining good ties with the states, and I think perhaps a lot of um, perhaps world world leaders um, all over the world are trying to do the same thing. Um, and while this does make sense economically, it doesn't do anything to address um, uh, the problems that China faces. Yeah, talking to our friend Quack from over in Australia. We're going to take a quick break. We come back on Hertel. We're going to continue to talk about poverty and wealth generation, a little economics. Going to take a look at it from the perspective of immigration. Two things that are always tied together is economics and immigration. We'll talk about that right after the break on Hertel. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're having a great talk with our friend uh, Zinian Quack from down in Australia. She's originally from Singapore, though, and that's kind of where we want to go with this conversation about economics and wealth generation and poverty. Uh, there's just no way to talk about the world economic story and not talk about immigration, uh, especially Western countries. Uh, you're living in Australia, which was a completely immigration other than the Aboriginal peoples heavy immigration. Uh, America, of course, is one of the great immigrant stories in all of human history. Why is it, just for people to understand, because immigration brings certain people's priors and they get their backs up a little bit, why is immigration and economics so inexorably linked together? I think um, I think if when you look back at countries that are incredibly wealthy, you think of Australia, you think of Hong Kong, um, the states, of course, and Singapore, and these countries, uh, these countries are built by these countries' wealth are uh, created by immigrants. 
by allowing immigrants to come in and be productive. So when, so I think the the most common misconception um, of immigration is that um, uh, people strongly believe in the zero sum um, uh, theory, but that's not true. They believe there's a lot of people who are against immigration believe that. Um, they believe that once immigrants immigrants come in, they're gonna take uh, uh, this, the locals' this jobs, but they don't. Um, and you can see that uh, you can you can you can tell that immigrants in fact boost productivity and economic growth. Um, when you look at exam- when you look at um, examples of um, businessmen who um, who who come who are, who come from a different country wanting to open wanting to start their business in your country and that's when they bring about new jobs um my favorite example is um this this founder of a hot pot company from china um Heidi Lau some of you may have heard of it um he once he made it in china he decided to migrate to singapore so now he's a Singaporean citizen. And while many are not quite receptive to immigrants coming, they cannot deny the fact that um, this businessman coming to Singapore um, drives business to um, Singapore. And um, it in turn creates jobs for Singaporeans. And this in turn boosts um, productivity, uh, lowers unemployment rate, and keeps us all happy. Yeah. Here in the States, because of COVID, we have this really weird economic thing we've been talking about with our economic friends when they come on the program of, we have a really low unemployment rate and we have a labor shortage, which doesn't make sense in traditional economics. But then part of the story of that is when you go look at the data from the last two and a half years, immigration has pretty much stopped from a dead standstill, some of it from COVID, some of it from other reasons. And boy, howdy, wouldn't you know that those gap numbers almost dead line up with the immigration that stopped and people i think maybe didn't realize that oh there's certain jobs that the immigrant classes come in and they fill these jobs and just nobody else is doing them that really was a thing and when covid hit all of a sudden people found that out uh there's that is an unfortunate reality i think um i think the the states uh i think i think the states was once um, a vibrant immig- uh, place for uh, what was I think the states was once very um, open to immigration, but that's not the case anymore. And it's the same in Australia. There are a lot of um, policies uh, regarding immigration that deter that deter um, that really deter immigrants, foreign workers from bring, from being product productive. And um, I think. An example from Australia is that at one point, um, uh, because of COVID, Austra- the Australian borders were not um, uh, open to those on bridging visas. And bridging visas is a type of visa that you you receive when you've applied for a work visa in Australia. So because a lot of these um, work visa applications have not been approved. A lot of people were um, working in working in Australia under a bridging visa, and because of the COVID, they went home. And um, when the government 
didn't allow these people to come back in. Um, they they saw uh, this they 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 witnessed the disastrous um, uh, outcome, which is that they didn't realize um, the aged care sector actually comprised mainly of um, foreign workers. So when this happened, um, the the aged care sector um, uh, lost a lot of uh, lost a lot of its um, staff and employees, and um, this resulted in deaths that could have been prevented, but because of the government's um, rigid um, immigration policies, uh, I think we're beginning to see the economic consequences. Why do people talking to our friend Quack? Um, people just talk about immigrations with like borders and people coming and going really the conversation with immigration, especially legal immigration. We're not talking about illegal immigration, which everybody agrees that you shouldn't have that. You have to have, you know, standards, you got to have voice. But when you're talking legal immigration, the part that has to be cohesive is some kind of a program, whether it's a visa program, a green card program, a sponsorship program, however you're going to do it. They have to have jobs and they have to have uh, inroads into the economy or the immigration is not going to work properly as far as economic development goes. You have countries like Australia, which are extremely restrictive with their visas. Uh, The EU is getting very restricted with their visas. We noticed the the problem with the refugees with Ukrainians is they're arguing over whether or not, you know, do they get a 90 day work permit or do they get a two year work exemption? You know, things like that's the discussion you have. Why in people's minds do they not put those two things together when really that should be the conversation when you're talking about legal immigration of not just the numbers you're letting in, but who you're letting in, which kind of skilled labor, which kind of skilled professionals and how to get them into the workforce in a permanent way and fast track that process, because that's really what determines whether or not immigration is successful or not more than the other factors, doesn't it? Um, I think there are two possibilities. I think when policymakers uh, come up with uh, immigration policies that do not account for short-term, medium-term, long-term effects, um, you, can, you, can, you can wonder to yourself, are they actually that short-sighted or do they simply just not want immigration? I think that's the biggest question and we'll never know. Because, well, we're not the government, but I think that is a question that a lot of people need to think about. Governments usually, government policies are usually reflective of um, their audience, which is us, the citizens. So it could be be due to um, general consensus in in the public, or it could be, it could just be like a big conspiracy I think that's that's a really really big topic. Yeah, um, you are an immigrant from Singapore. Uh, obviously, uh, Singapore is dominated with concerns about China. I know it's a little bit different because of the treaties and the way it worked out. Does Singapore look at what's gone on in Hong Kong over the last 15, 20 years, and especially the last three years, with a very wary eye? Is that something they're actively worried about? Because if I was them. I sure would be, but you're from there. You're on that side of the planet. You tell me, is how are they viewing uh, China and more specifically the Chinese Communist Party and the ruling party of China right now? Because you talked about it before, they're 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 trying to find a balance. Uh, that balance is not just a political one; it's an existential threat kind of finding a balance, isn't it? 
I think um, this concerns, uh, this is a geopolitical concern of Singapore um, due to trade ties. And um, well, I'm going to be honest, I'm probably not the best person to consult um, on because I've been in Australia, I've been in Sydney for what, seven years now. But I do believe, I, I do understand um, Singapore's um, political, uh, I, th I, do, I do understand that um, Singapore likes to take on a more neutral stance. And um, I think Singapore, but I think, I think from what I can tell anyway, I think Singapore's um, strategy really is to maintain good, good relationship with China and to, um, of course, um, build up defense while at the same time um, expressing, um, expressing uh, the care for affected countries like Hong Kong. I think that's what Singapore is doing. And I, I think I, I do sort of agree with their take because it, it could be quite dangerous to take on China given their, given their population. Singapore is a really small country um, with no natural resources. Uh, I think we're, I think Singapore, I think we're quite limited in what we can do about China, but I think it's really important not to aggravate China, not to aggravate um, the precedents um, and just maybe become the Norway of this of Southeast Asia. That, that might be a tough sell to the Singapore folks, but maybe they like the comparison. Uh, Zinian Quack, uh, love talking a little bit of uh, power and economics and poverty and wealth generation with you. Uh, this is actually your second time on the program. It's just nobody got to see the first one because we had a little bit of a technical <laughs> glitch, but we're really glad you're back. Uh, look forward to talking to you in the future because China is obviously not going anywhere. Uh, Australia is one of our great partners in the world. We'll be talking to you in the future on these sorts of matters. Uh, let folks know where they can find you on things like social media and where you're writing and what you've got going on. Absolutely. Um, well, you have like the like Twitter handle. Yep. <laughs> I, I only use Twitter for um, economics stuff. Yeah. But don't worry, my name is really easy to find. It's really, it's, it's, it's quite a common name across um, Western countries. Yeah, uh, I practiced it before I said it with her and asked her if I was pronouncing it right, because you all know how well I pronounce names uh, in my hillbilly-ish. So uh, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your insight. And it's always fun to talk to you. Uh, first thing in the morning for us, evening for you because of the time difference. So thanks for the time, Quack. We really appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. You too. Thank you, man. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Interesting follow-up to a story. Uh, I don't think we covered it on the program here at Hertel. We talked about it at Ordinary Times with our buddy uh, Michael Siegel and some other folks who wrote about this. You remember a while back, uh, let's see here. Uh, there was a cold case, quote unquote, cold case team that decided that they had figured out who was in charge of betraying Anne Frank and her family. You may have saw this headline back a couple of months ago. Uh, this is from the Washington Post. A group of Dutch historians has published an in-depth criticism of the work and the conclusion of a cold case team that said it had pieced together the, quote, most likely scenario of who betrayed the Jewish teenager diarist 
Anne Frank, the Diary of Anne Frank, the very famous book that so many people have read, and her family, the Cold Case Team Research, which was published earlier this year in the book, quote, The Betrayal of Anne Frank, a Cold Case Investigation by Canadian academic and author Rosemary Sullivan, immediately drew criticism in the Netherlands. Now, and the criticism here was they actually named the name of a person that they thought was responsible, and it kind of threw a lot of red flags like, well, wait a minute, this is 70 years after the fact. This individual can't really defend themselves. Maybe this isn't completely fair. Washington Post follows up this way. Now, in a 69-page written refutation, six historians and academics describe the cold case team's finding as, quote, a shaky house of cards. The book's Dutch publisher repeated an earlier apology and announced Tuesday night as pulling the books from stores completely. The book said that the person who revealed the location of the Frank family's secret annex hiding place in an Amsterdam canal side building was likely a prominent Jewish notary, Arnold Vandenberg, who disclosed the location to German occupiers of the Netherlands to save his own family from deportation and death in the Nazi Terrenton concentration camps. Dutch historians reviewed the team's work and concluded that the accusation does not hold water. Historians said the book, quote, displays a distinct pattern in which the assumptions are made by the team, helped held to be true a moment later, and then used as a building block for the next step in the train of logic. This makes an entire book a shaky house of cards, because if any single step turns out to be wrong, the cards above also collapse. In response, the cold case team's leader, Peter Van Twisk, told Dutch broadcaster NOS the historian's work was very detailed and extremely solid and said it gives a number of things to think about. But for the time being, I do not see that Vandenberg can be definitively removed as the main suspect. Since the book's publication in January, the team has published detailed reactions to criticism of its work on its website. Dutch filmmaker Trish Bayen, who had the idea to put the whole thing together in the cold case team, conceived it in January that the team did not have 100% certainty about Vandenberg. Quote, there's no smoking gun because betrayal is circumstantial, Bynes said to the Associated Press at the time. The Frank family of four and other Jews hid in the annex, which was reached by a secret staircase hidden behind a bookcase from July 1942 until they were discovered in August 1944 and departed to the camps. Anne and her sister died in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Anne was only 15 years old. Only her father, Otto Frank, survived the Holocaust out of the family. He's the one that published her diary after World War II and it became an enduring symbol of hope, resilience, and has sold millions and millions of copies. It's also required reading in a lot of schools. The Anne Frank House Museum, which is based in the building where the Frank family hid, had no immediate comment other than the museum director said it is, quote, an interesting theory, but said he believes there are still many missing pieces to the puzzle and those puzzles and pieces need to be further investigated in order to see how we can value this new theory. Um, I have been to Harlem uh, in the Netherlands. I have been to the Corey Ten Boom hiding place upstairs of the uh, clock and watch shop that their family ran. You access that through a kitchen cabinet. You actually crawl through the kitchen cabinet and there was this little space on the wall and you just kind of shimmy down through it sideways. Uh, it is a humbling, uh, moving place to stand in those areas, confined and wonder what those people must have thought and felt. If you've never been to a concentration camp, I don't believe in ghosts, but I'm telling you when you stand at one of the concentration camps in Germany or Austria or wherever the case may be, you can still feel the evil there. It's like a wet blanket in the air. It's something that is just undescribable if you've never been there. I have got to go to some of the hiding places in Holland. These are things that folks need to take very, very seriously. I don't know how serious it was to point this particular individual out. But a broader point, the story of folks like Anne Frank of the Holocaust 
needs to be repeated, needs to be handed down, needs to be part of our tradition of warning how evil mankind can be to itself. Because we've already seen in our politics lately, there's plenty of people who want to act like that did not happen or would be perfectly happy for it to happen again. We need to guard our hearts and we do it by telling the story of folks like Anne Frank. More Hertel right after this. Oh, welcome back to Hertel. You know, we always end on a good or a happy note. Uh, what could be happier than barbecue? Springtime, getting ready to be summertime. That means the return of barbecue after years of barbecue festivals being delayed because of COVID and other matters. Uh, they're going to have a shindig in Charlotte, May 22nd, if you're in the Charlotte area. Lewis Donald, a uh, famous guy, uh, did his apprenticeship at the Greenbrier Resort. This is from uh, Axios Charlotte. Uh, to his own Sweet Lou's barbecue in the Belmont neighborhood today. The meat has always been secondary to good company, so anybody who knows him will hardly be surprised by the news. Donald's rounding up his pals to bring a true regional Q festival to Charlotte this May, with all proceeds going to charity. Carolina Barbecue Festival, built entirely around pork, slated for May 22nd at the Camp North End, will include an all-star list of pitmasters and owners from North and South Carolina. It's a long, distinguished list um good deal 75 bucks you get four hours of beer music three distinct types of barbecue uh it's funny because if you've ever been in the carolinas you know the debate is eastern style versus western style how much vinegar you like in it what's the sauce base this sort of argument uh there's a great line in here um donald said it's barbecue focused the beer and the music is secondary it's continuing the heritage one of our slogans is divided by sauce united by coals yeah we may use different sauces but we all doing the same thing it's mass produced barbecue versus slow and steady and we're the slow and steady folks here's the thing about donald that we put him in our uh good news section besides just the fact that we all love good barbecue uh donald founded sweet lose in 2018 after working for years at reeds before that he spent a career traveling across the country learning recipes and techniques from some of the leaders across the world in smoking when he opened, he originally wanted to be like small joints that stopped serving when they ran out of food, sort of like John G's. John G's is one of those legendary joints. They open on Saturday and they serve until they run out. And you better be in line four hours early if you want to even think about getting a plate. Uh, but Charlotte is just a totally different market. He said as soon as people started complaining about running out of food, he changed his approach. Uh, but here's the kicker. Not only is this festival going to have all their proceeds going to charity, uh, he donates hundreds of meals a year to charities like Heal Charlotte, and World Central Kitchen at Jose Andres's uh, charity. The Carolina Barbecue Festival will create an interesting compliment for the traveling beer, bourbon, and barbecue festival that will be in Ballantyne the day before May 21st. So May 22nd, that is a uh, Sunday. That's Jamie Wilson's birthday, a buddy of mine I grew up with. Happy birthday to him on that weekend. Go check out some barbecue and some good friends, and it's also for a good cause. That'll do it for her tell for this week. We'll see you back again Monday between now and then twice on Sunday. Our recap show will be out on Sunday. That's also uh, on the Big Talker radio. They will stream it out on uh, 8 a.m. and 2 p.m., a little different time zone from the weekly Hertel. However you're listening and or watching, make sure you're subscribing, though. It's very important. Uh, that way you don't miss anything we do, the weekly shows, the twice on Sunday show on Sundays, the long-form podcast that we do. You'll get all of it. It also lets us keep track of who's watching, where you're watching, and whether or not you're watching at all. Because if you're not watching and listening, then we're just kind of talking into the void, and we don't want that. This is a partnership. This is a relationship. 
if you're not listening and watching, uh, we don't have anybody to talk to. So you can actually give us ideas. We've done whole segments on the show based off feedback from listeners and viewers. Uh, Herdtellshow at gmail.com. Also, Herdtellshow on the Twitter. Happy to hear from you. Also, the lower third graphics, if you're watching on YouTube, my social media accounts and those of our guests are always on there. Always happy to hear from you. Make sure you are supporting them. So going into the weekend, hope you all have good plans planned wherever you and yours are. We hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we will see you Monday for Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Sauce.